Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Jeremy Saulnier has carved out his own little place in filmic history. His second feature film, Blue Ruin, was the first of its kind in many ways, an artful genre thriller that is a spectacle to behold and shot on a shoestring budget. His next film, Green Room, cemented his place as one of today's most talented thriller auteurs, and it all stems back from blowing shit up as an eight-year-old in his backyard. There wasn't really a time when Saulnier's life didn't revolve around the camera. From making zombie flicks as a teen, to starting a film collective in high school, to making his way up the film ladder as a cinematographer, his experiences have been a constant education on the ways of film. And while he swears his days as a DP were, quote, more fun, his artful visual touch is still very much present as a director. The latest film on his resume, the Netflix-produced Hold the Dark, is further evidence of his unique ability to tell suspenseful stories from behind the lens of a camera. In it, Jeffrey Wright plays a writer named Russell Kaur, who, after the deaths of three children suspected to be killed by wolves, is hired by the mother of a missing six-year-old boy to track down and locate their son in the Alaskan wilderness. I sat down with Saulnier to discuss getting your hands dirty on production, keeping that enthusiasm going, and not being afraid to ask for what your narrative demands. Hey guys, um, it's John Fusco, and I'm here with Jeremy Saulnier today, um, and I've been actually waiting for this interview for a long time. Um, I've been a big fan of your work. Uh, like I saw Blue Ruin uh, just one night randomly on Netflix, maybe like five years ago. When when was that? Four years ago? Um, and it just kind of blew me away wow, <laughs> in a lot you. of ways. Um, well, it's good to be here. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your new movie, Hold the Dark. What about Murder Party? We're going to no, talk about Murder Party. <laughs> I have seen it. Oh, uh, really? And it's on Netflix too now, it I is. noticed, which is awesome <laughs> because it took me like, it, I had to like download it off of Pirate Bay or whatever mm-hmm. because it was hard to find. Uh, now it's readily That's money available. out of my pocket. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. That's 14 cents <laughs> for the DVD, you know. Yeah. Actually, true. I don't get residuals. I wasn't DGA for Murder Party, so. And you shot that That's in Bushwick, fun. right? You shot that like right yeah. around the corner from where we mm-hmm. are now. Um, but I, I mean, talking about your your previous experience uh, prior to Hold the Dark, I think I'd just like to open this interview with uh, a question I had wondering about how, you know, being a DP um, for Matt Porterfield and uh, your own projects, uh, how that helped you or helps to inform who you are as a director today. Oh, for sure. I mean, everything's like an internship um, but it's about finding the opportunity. And Matt was a friend from film school and gave me the first opportunity to shoot a feature. Yeah, I wasn't quite ready, nor was he, to make one. But um, so it was actually a great film school connection. But he had dropped out and used used whatever tuition money he had left to, to just make a movie, which is inspiring. Mm. Um, but, you know, back then it was we shot on film, 16-millimeter and we, I had, I think, a Hi8 camera, video camera that we just go around and we pre-shot most of the movie, just kind of just like what, what kind of frames we're looking for. He gave me references, um, films to watch. I forgot some of the names, a lot of sort of French film. And I remember uh, David Gordon Green's film, George Washington was a reference. Mm. It was great. We, um, so we learned together, we developed an aesthetic together. And uh, I think it was pretty fruitful relationship. It was intuitive, and we were just always on the same page. I had always aspired to do a little more sleazy cinema, you know, kind of 
My first film was a horror comedy. I shot a couple years after he shot Hamilton. He was my first AD on Murder Party. Mm. But um, it was good working with Matt. He, you know, he he made me, I think, he changed my trajectory a bit uh, for the better. Hmm. Little How so? A little more artsy-fartsy. Yeah? You know, expanded my horizons. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I loved serving a director and helping them realize their vision. And it's also being a DP is way more fun than being a director. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, why do you say that? Well, the experience on set is just, again, you're a key collaborator. You have a huge impact on the creative result of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have one thing to do. It involves multitasking, surely, as far as uh, running the technical crew. Mm -hmm. But um, the burden is not on you. Right. The burden is on the director. Um, you can help. You're a little more clear with how you can problem solve and um, shoot an impossible schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, advise what cuts to make when you're put through the ringer. But the like, directors, even myself, you know, about 15% of the energy you have goes to the craft of directing. Everything else goes to managing and scrambling and juggling and logistics and things falling through, uh, repurposing whatever you have to, to, to get through. It's just, it's just everything but let me think about the scene. Let me help the actors get through it and craft it. And if you make – if something isn't hitting the right note, let's correct it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen, uh, at least not yet to me. You just kind of have us yeah, as a director, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. Hmm. It's going too fast. Mm-hmm. Shooting days are just not what they used to be. Right. Um, my, I think my, my bitch and moan of the year, what, what I kind of tell everybody when I'm trying to figure out this business, what's, what's going on with movies? Why, why is it always so fucking hard to make them? Why is it so painful? Why do they make it? So this, I mean, it shouldn't be easy. You're fighting the elements, but it shouldn't be torture. Right. And... I started looking at shooting days of other movies. Like, why is this awesome 1986 comedy just, like, so well-crafted? Why is Risky Business such a dope movie? <laughs> 55 shoot days. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit, yeah. And that's what they used to do for, like, a $6 million, like, you know, it's studio comedy. It's it's a solid movie. Really, I really like that movie, but it's a nice random sample. 55 shoot days. And I'm, I got Hold the Dark here, and I'm doing... You know, I'm doing war scenes. I'm doing aerial scenes, working with wolves. We got second and third unit, um, huge action set piece in the middle of film, and I got 39 days. Yeah, you know, so it's just it's a little crazy. And um, not to mention, like, you where did you shoot? It was in uh, it was in Canada, Al- yeah, or? Alberta. So outside just the, the the Calgary area. And so those days must have been much shorter, just in general, in terms of like light and um, yeah. <laughs> but we had a lot of night stuff. I mean, yeah. we, we were never, like, without material to shoot. Um, it was a really tough schedule. We went over a couple of days. I think we had one extra day in Calgary. Then we, we shifted to Morocco to shoot some Iraq oh, war yeah. scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and mm, the gear didn't work too well there. We kind of lost a day. We, got, we had a day where we got four shots off because the – I believe in one day – the camera crane broke, the tow rig broke, the 50 caliber machine gun broke, and um, 
some other thing broke. But there's a lot of spot welding happening on the set. Yeah. And we had to just kind of, it was the last day of production. We said, we're just going to come back and do it again. We'll, we'll just reconvene and add, add a day to production. But at that point, we were almost through it, so it wasn't a huge deal. So talking about like the 50 caliber machine gun going down, a lot of the stuff you did, I mean, this makes sense. I saw a talk that you did at uh, the Lower East Side Film Festival, actually, like a few oh, years yeah. ago, um, about thrillers and like what it takes to write a thriller or a horror movie. Um, it seems like practical effects are a big part of your uh, aesthetic, so to speak, yes. which I greatly appreciate. Um, can you speak to maybe like the uh, what what practical effects mean to you versus like the digital realm that we see so often in action movies these days. Yeah, I it's just what sort of lit the fire in me to make movies is it started with making dioramas in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'd set them on fire. <laughs> but I'd take photos of them. Like I'd do like a cobra hiss from G.I. Joe, put it in the dirt, melt it a little bit. And I started doing these sort of these still lives, um, hmm. but I'd, I'd recreate things. I was a, fi- a fine scale modeler as a kid. My dad was when he was uh, in his formative years. So I like just realism and recreating things on a smaller scale, and that translated to a, a, a traumatic experience watching Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th Part 3 in a basement. My cousins forced me to watch it. I was about eight years old, <laughs> and they would. It was just just the opening SWAT team scene in Dawn of the Dead, so the head exploding over and over, some good neck bites. <laughs> and I think as a as a I was already sort of artsy and craftsy. I like to do shit with my hands mm-hmm. and paint and be an artist. So I just well, let me just before I go insane, let me reverse engineer this and see how they did it because it's actually pretty cool. Mm. I liked the, the there's something about a zombie flick. I was like, oh, let me let me investigate this further. Got into Tom Savini through that, um, and whatever books I could find, you know, uh, heard about Dick Smith's class, but that was expensive and couldn't afford it. But I always sort of pursued that, and I loved. It. So that converted from still lifes and pictures of miniatures to my mom was a researcher at a deaf university, and she did a lot of archiving on video cassettes. So she brought home this old, or right then, brand new state of the art yeah. VHS camcorder. Uh, with a separate sort of uh, shoulder-strapped uh, deck that recorded on a tether. Wow. But um, so then I was doing that in my backyard, and and I gravitated towards the practical effects, um, gags and stunts. It's what, you know, it's like young boys playing in their backyard. It's like like tigers. They play fight. They play mm-hmm. kill. Mm-hmm. War. And that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I met some friends, and we all became a film collective. And, and we just, you know, there was actually no choice back then. We did use a video toaster to do some edits. Okay. What's one, a video toaster? One of the, one of the first sort of uh, edit systems okay. uh, they had out there mm. for, the, for, like, the semi-professional market. <laughs> you know, video wipes and transitions yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two VHS players. Cool. But, um, we, you know, we had to do that practically. Anything we would do. For school, we'd Macbeth or Beowulf. Instead of doing book reports, we'd just do yeah. videos. So we'd get in like Monty Python style wardrobe and mm-hmm. shitty British accents and set each other on fire and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> did you actually set each other on fire? Oh did, yeah! Wow. Car hits. We did everything. I mean, back back then it was a different different era. You could you could walk around a neighborhood with a toy gun and people would know it's just some shitheads with a toy gun. Yeah. 
um, the, you know, there's blood in the gutters and people will stop by. They, they, they weren't saying, are you okay? They'd say, what are you boys doing, you know? Um, and we're making a movie, uh, <laughs> you know, down by the train tracks doing bullshit. So it was really fun, kind of a free-for-all, like, you know, late 80s, mostly early to mid-90s. Um, unfortunately, pre-Columbine, mm-hmm. you know, it, just, it was just this nice little time where uh, that kind of shit didn't happen. So you could run around and do crazy shit in the streets and have fun and blow each other up, mm-hmm. and there was not some sort of, you know, no dread associated with it. Right. Just good times, yeah. exploding heads and <laughs> all that stuff. Um, Is there any sort of equivalent that maybe, like, kids today could go out and do? I mean, like, the democratization of film is, like, a real thing with all these new cameras that are coming out. Um, yeah. Uh, making a film collective seems like it was such a formative part of your... Yeah, do it young, meaning this is when we could... Now, video was still a novelty when we were doing this, meaning the teachers would sign off, like... Oh, these kids are going to go make a video. Like I had a a, a, a paper due on this sort of the Falkland Island War, mm-hmm. so I just made a video, and did a war movie. <laughs> you know, got all my friends together, got a bunch of fireworks. Um, so I, it's hard to, the, like the advice I have, like my story, it's hard to to suggest to people. Like, right. Go get a bunch of fireworks when you're eight <laughs> or twelve, and go blow, blow your up. friends yeah. up. And uh, but. But definitely, but but get your get your hands dirty. Go out and have fun. And um, you know, people by the time listening to actual podcasts, I don't know, they're probably in high school or. Um, but that's when we made most of our films. It's high school, and we had a collective, and we did it, and we didn't have assigned roles. We didn't know who the director was or who the DP. We, we just kind of revolve. If your turn to get eaten by a zombie, you're <laughs> in front of the camera, then you come back behind the camera so that your friend can get eaten by the zombie. Whatever it was, um, we just had fun, and we. You know, yeah. Again, like credit or, um, or or assigning roles just wasn't. We were just a, a sort of organism that yeah. functioned as one. And uh, yeah, I mean, with the access now, I'm jealous of. Meaning, even for Blue Ruin, that's what triggered that movie. Is I was waiting for affordable cameras to come out that actually looked like movies. Mm-hmm. And for Murder Party, my first film wasn't quite that. We shot standard definition video. I mm-hmm. didn't know how to light. Mm-hmm. I knew how to tell a story with the camera, but hmm. I felt the cinematography, which I did myself, was so subpar. But that's why it was a horror comedy, gonzo, Halloween, Fright Fest. Yeah. It was because like, let's laugh at ourselves and have others laugh at us too and not try and put, when we first make a movie, we just don't have the skills yet or the resources, so let's just get goofy yeah. and, and embrace what you have around you. That's, that's the certainly lesson you can learn from my movies is Murder Party is my high school friends in a warehouse because <laughs> we could get that done. Mm-hmm. Although the lesson I learned was not just to listen to everyone saying, oh, if you want to do a cheap movie, do people talking in a room because that for me was aggravating because mm-hmm. you have one sort of bit of continuity and you're, just, you're getting eight people in a room and they're just talking and doing... Two, two takes each, but it's still 16 takes of the same scene. You burn mm. people out. And I wanted nothing more to be more just to be visually sort of driven and go out on the open road. So Blue Ruin was like actually a response to murder. I'm not going to lock myself in a fucking room like everyone tells you to. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a camera and totally unlock that room hmm. and go shoot what I learned on the corporate video circuit, like little slider on a tripod, five-pound Canon camera. You know, mm. Just do this. Um, and execute a movie that 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 instead of 
was what you're supposed to do for a low-budget operation was what I didn't see happening, which was a artful genre flick mm. um, told in a, in a sort of very visual, quiet way that has was troubling, uh, deep enough to sort of to hit the art house audience, but satisfying enough on a genre level to actually sell the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Very practically built from the ground up with resources that, from the picture cars to locations to actors, you know, just whatever I had with me. Um, and I did exactly what no one else was doing at the time. Mm. Now it, now it's a lot easier. People do it. And uh, I'm excited to have been like, you know, that's the one thing I did before people, uh, before others. It was like I had yeah. a little space where I did, I did Blue Ruin because <laughs> I didn't see those films on the festival circuit I, at the time. I, I mean, I hadn't seen one. Like, I, I was just saying in the intro to this podcast, like I really hadn't uh, seen anything like it at the time. And I was so blown away by like the – yeah, like the expansiveness of the story that you were able to tell from out of nowhere. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I guess I just got the wrap-up symbol, uh, symbol, sign. Um, so I'm just going to ask one last question, which is uh, something that I asked all of our guests, which is if you had any golden nugget of advice for prospective filmmakers. You've given a lo- us a lot of good advice already, but um, what would your top number one piece of advice be? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I think I, you know, and I, I'll segue back to Hold the Dark because that's kind of yeah, yes, the the most latest movie. You know, one day I'll probably write a book. Ooh, because a lot a lot of the things, as you enter the film industry, you have to disclose less because mm-hmm. there's other people involved and other companies and and no, I'm not talking shit about Netflix. They are the best partners ever, and supportive. It's more about just like the secret histories of movies and how things get made. Um, it's sensitive. Not when I did Murder Party of Blue Ruin because I owned it, I funded it. It was my friends and myself, we were fucking up and we'll share all of our fuck ups with mm-hmm. everybody. Um, those are easier to talk about. But for, for Hold the Dark, it was like, you know, I think I learned primarily that the imposter syndrome which plagues so many filmmakers like one day you'll be found out that you're not who people say you are right you're not a master of genre you're just a jerkamo <laughs> um and and they're gonna take it take it away from you you're not gonna direct again you know it's just it's just t- this terror mm. um at a certain point in, you know right night right now I, you have to admit like okay no i'm a filmmaker because if you if you go into it now you should always be kind you should always be pragmatic and have solutions that you work out with your collaborators, but you should not be embarrassed to be a filmmaker. You should, you should ask for what the narrative demands, and that's what I've been learning the last two movies. Is you know, I was I felt guilty because we built a whole concert venue for Green Room. Yeah. I felt I was like, oh, so like we're gonna build it like just because I I want the door here and the hallway here, mm. and then it ended up like the whole the whole architecture of the film. It all boiled down to like if it wasn't what was in my head when I wrote the script. It was a redesign of the whole movie. Yeah. So just no, we're gonna spend a shit ton of money and do it. Hell, the dark was just, um, you know, I had so many new resources. It was still the same problems as far as like we were making a twenty-five million dollar movie for under fifteen million, um, punching above our weight class and doing all that. But um, I came out of it, uh, and I think this might be just more symptomatic of me and my own reservations but to be grateful man it's like i was 
coming off this run and, and just never had time to blink between making Blue Ruin and and Into Hold the Dark because I, I just couldn't stop. I, between movies, it takes so long to get off the ground and you're working for free for over a year and it's like it it feels fancy outside, but inside it's it's desperate. Huh. But Hold the Dark, I was like, okay, here I am. I'm doing war scenes and shootouts and intimate dialogue exchanges with you know, Jeffrey Wright and Riley Keough and James Batchdale, Alexander Skarsgård, Julian and Black Antelope, like these amazing sort of cast members. And I made myself be grateful. I, I, I said, well, you know, we were on some location scout or some miscommunication. We couldn't even shoot here because the logistics can't get the gear up to the snowy path. And it was like, why are we even here? Mm. But instead of bitching, which I, you know, would have done normally, I just, I did, I fell back into the snow, made a snow angel and looked up and was like, man, I, this is, this is a, truly a privilege and I'm really, really thankful. And then, uh, then I got back to work and started bitching again. But I did take that time, so it's important to do that. Yeah. But, I, but Nuggets is just don't stop. You know, mm. I stay close to the industry and peripheral career tracks. Like, I was a camera person, but I never, I never left. I never, I never quit you, film. <laughs> um, so when I came back and did Blue Rue, and it was with the producers who did films that funded other directors that I shot for, it was all full circle. You keep, just keep in play and... Um, and don't get you know, if you get ambitious and you blow money on a movie that does not do well or your experiment fails, um, just you know keep working and regroup. And then it, for me, it was six years between movies, and then all of a sudden I broke through, and now I'm a filmmaker. But um, you know, find your own path. Listen to me and everyone else that that, that offers advice, but then filter that and uh, ignore what you have to. Yeah, do what works <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, great, Jeremy. Well, congratulations on being a filmmaker all right my pleasure (laughs) and uh i can't wait to see the next one thank you see you jeremy bye-bye thanks for listening if you like what you heard please subscribe to the no film school podcast on any podcast platform you use and if you really like us go ahead and rate us on whatever platform that is hold the dark is on netflix now so you can go ahead and watch it in the comfort of your own home and it's also in theaters so if you want to see it in theaters go ahead and do some research and uh, see if it's in a city around you i'm john fusco you can follow me on twitter at jim underscore john underscore jim you can follow no film school at no film school and be sure to tune in every thursday for indie film weekly that's our weekly news show and we have these interviews every monday with a ton of great more content coming out so until next time i'll see you then